We find ourselves this morning in Hebrews chapter 2. It's page 1185, if you're following along in a pew Bible. I'm just going to start out by going to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who reveals yourself. God, that we do not have to sit and to question and to wonder who you are or how we are to live before your throne, that we can know you, that we can worship you. We thank you for the way you reveal yourself in your word, the way you have revealed yourself completely and supremely in Christ. And God, we pray that you would speak to us now. Speak to us from your word. God, work on our hearts to help us to become more like you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, so here we are in chapter 2. I think we have this great text this morning that is a, it's a bit deep, it's a bit heady. Uh, I was a little uh, nervous talking to Phil this morning. He told me that uh, John Piper spent four sermons doing this text this morning. So, um, and John Piper's my hero, so I'm going to see if we can do it in one. But uh, before we go to the text, I want to start for a moment with a quote from Anselm of Canterbury. He was a theologian in the 12th century. He asks the question that I think this morning our text answers for us. And if any of you are interested, if you're a geek like me and you like reading about church history and theology, I encourage you to pick up Anselm's Why God Became Man. Um, It's a very helpful book. Anselm asks, For what necessity and what reason did God, since he is omnipotent, take upon himself the humiliation and the weakness of human nature in order to bring about its restoration. Why did God do it that way? Why did God come down? Why do we have this doctrine in Christianity, the doctrine of the the person of Christ, where we say that he was fully God and fully man? Why did he do it that way? You know, I think if, uh, if, if you're in the room and, you know, you've, you've been a believer for any length of time, it is entirely too easy for us to lose the wow and the wonder and the astonishment over the incarnation of Christ. Or perhaps it's, it's entirely too easy for us if, if we haven't been a believer for very long or, or you're just kind of investigating this Jesus thing. You understand the doctrine, but the question is still there, well, well why? And I think our text answers it for us this morning as we look at it. So let's just look at chapter 2, starting in verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting for God, or it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and all the children God has given me. Since the children had flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, 
in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help us when we are being tempted. Well, you know, again, this sermon, or this text, I think has enough meat in it for, for two, three, maybe even four sermons. But there is one, one word, one phrase this morning that I think kind of locks the entire narrative together for us. And I think if we, if we can grip on to this phrase, it'll just march us right through the entire text. And that's the phrase, the word, right in, in verse 10. It was fitting. It was fitting that Christ would come down. It was fitting that Christ would suffer. It was fitting that Christ would, as it says later on, be made like his brothers in every way. Not that God arbitrarily kind of chose it to be how it is. Not that God was, had his hand forced to do it the way it has done. But that it was fitting that Christ would come down, that he would, as the text tells us, act as our great high priest, that he would die on a cross, that he would be raised again, that we could call him high priest, that we could call God Father. And later, as the text tells us, that Christ could help us in our temptation and in our trial. So, you know, I I think this morning, if you're one of those kind of people that takes notes, I kind of look at this sermon as the, the triple A sermon. Don't leave, get on the road without it. We've got atonement, we have adoption, and we have the application that necessarily follows from those two deep and rich doctrines. Atonement. You know, it's a word that you don't hear a lot today. You know, I think our modern culture is a little bit squeamish about the concept of punishment in general, even if someone deserves it. You know, there's all this talk about, oh, I know they committed this crime, but it's really they had a bad upbringing. Or, you know, they had that math teacher in the third grade, and she was the one that spoiled that person. You know, even if someone deserves punishment, so often in our society we don't want to talk about it. People don't want to hear it in some quarters. Um, our society less enjoys, I think, the idea of um, sin as the root cause for the human dilemma. It um, is much rather talk about how lack of access to health care, poor education, lack of love. These are the reasons that so often we hear are the problems in the world today. And yet I, I respectfully answer that when I put down the newspaper, when I turn off the news, when I close the website that I'm reading news on, I find myself unable to think of any other problem than sin for the cause of our dilemma. And so we've got this idea of sin and punishment that kind of fall underneath a broader rubric of the atonement that we're going to see this morning. And this idea of atonement is all over Scripture. And so we read in verse 17, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The high priest was responsible to act as a mediator between God and man. He would would plead to God on behalf of the Israelites, pleading for God's mercy, God's provision, God's love, God's faithfulness. And he would plead to the the Israelites on behalf of God, encouraging them, exhorting them towards life, godliness, holiness. He he would kind of stand in between those two worlds, pleading for, for each party. And there was one event that the high priest would do every year that was perhaps the most significant thing that his office would require, and that was on the Day of Atonement every year. It was a day when the high priest would address 
the sin problem of himself and the entire Israelite people. It was a day when he would take two goats and he would sacrifice the first goat to appease the right and just wrath of God brought about through the iniquity of the people of Israel. And then, on, and then on the second goat, he would kind of place his hands as a, you know, a scapegoat is literally what the goat is called. And he would figuratively place the sins of the people of Israel on that goat, send the goat out into the wilderness as a demonstration to the people that as far away as that goat went, so their sins had been removed from them in the sight of God. That as far as the east is from the west, their sins were gone, even as that goat left. And so this was the task that the high priest did. He would, he would pacify the wrath of God. He would cleanse the people of their sins. Every year he performed this ritual as a demonstration that they had a very real need that needed to be dealt with, that they had a very holy, righteous God who needed to be approached in that way. And every year he showed the people that a sacrifice of blood was necessary in order to make atonement. And yet, the, and so the writer of Hebrews tells us here that Christ is the great high priest, that he came and that he did not make a sacrifice that needed to be made year after year after year, that he did it once. And that this is the heart of the gospel. And I think anytime we hear a presentation of the gospel today that does not include this concept of atonement, we have not heard a faithful gospel. We've heard something that is incomplete. And in its, in, in its incompleteness, it has lost the truthfulness of the gospel. But I think there's a few clarifications that are, that are in order when we talk about this idea of atonement and as we try to clarify what it is and what it is not. Atonement is not the attempts of us as human beings to approach a, a fickle creator and make him do that which we want or desire even though that is exactly, I think, the attitude that historically has been had on atonement as a concept. We, we see this, you see this if you read Homer's The Iliad. You see what happens. You have Paris of Troy. He goes, he makes an agreement with the king of Sparta, Menelaus. He falls in love with Menelaus' wife, Helen, who is supposedly the most beautiful woman in the known world. They go on off to Troy. Menelaus gets frustrated. He, he goes, he meets up with his, his brother, the king Agamemnon. They form the largest fleet that has ever been assembled in the known world. And they get ready to set sail to the east to bring Troy to its knees. However, you know, Poseidon, the god, kind of really likes the Trojans. And so he sends this strong westerly wind so that the Greeks, you know, can row and sail all they want, but they're never going to get where they want to go. And so then we see, you know, Agamemnon, this king who is just filled with, with greed and a lust for power. He takes his infant daughter, he sacrifices her to the god Poseidon in the hopes that Poseidon will relent and give them the easterly wind that they need. In the story, it works. This, this was the predominant view in the ancient Near East. If we look at the Canaanites that were there before the Israelites went in, we read in the Old Testament about these people that worshipped Baal and Molech and Ashtoreth. This was the kind of God that they believed in. They believed in a God that you know, was, could be appeased, that could be bargained with, that could be barred with, that could be approached as an equal. And if you give him something then he'll give you what you want. And so the, the greater the sacrifice you make, the more leverage you have to push his hand exactly where you want it to go. 
This is the example we see in the book of Judges with a confused and theologically heterodox Jephthah when he approaches God to make a sacrifice that God neither wants, requires, or asks for. But we have to make no mistake, this is not the biblical view of the atonement that was worked by Christ. We are not approaching a fickle God that can be approached as an equal. In fact, we're not even the ones approaching God in the first place. He is the one approaching us. We are not the ones sacrificing anything of our own. He is the one that has sacrificed all for us. And so we have in verse 17, Jesus called a faithful high priest because He is acting to carry out the will of the Godhead even though it will cost Him suffering and death. And this atonement, this sacrifice purchases not fortune, not fame, not victory. It purchases a relationship, a restoration with the God who made us, who loves us, and who desperately wants us to be able to call Him Father. It's a death for your sins and mine. It's His death where Jesus takes the place of each of the goats, paying for sins past, present, and future, dying to appease the just wrath of God. For many years the Israelites celebrated the Day of Atonement, but the Old Testament makes it clear that the blood of bulls and goats does not remove sins. It was pointing forward towards the work of Christ. And you know, I think it is only by looking at the Um, remedy that was needed in order to deal with the problem of sin, that we understand the severity of sin itself. Jesus did not suffer simply because God was looking for some great way to show humanity that he loved them. Jesus, you know, God was not looking for some saying, hey, I need some blinkety-blink neon sign to show people that I care about them. Jesus did not die for that. Jesus did not go through the pain of asphyxiation as he was there on the cross because God just said, hey, here's a great idea. No, it was fitting for it to be that way. It was fitting for Christ to be the second Adam. It was fitting for Christ to come down and to suffer so that we did not have to. Sin is not simply doing something wrong. It's not simply missing the mark. It's not simply messing up. It is an affront to the living God. It's a moment where, like Adam and Eve, we look back at God and we say, hey, I know better. I, I know you want me to do this, but I'm going to do this. Hey, I don't need your advice. I don't need your help. I don't need your lordship over my life. I've got it all set. Thanks. We'll talk later. It's a moment when we buck and reject His rightful leadership. It's a moment that earns us God's wrath because He is determined to satisfy His justice. We can hear it from the prophet Nahum. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes His vengeance and is filled with the wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on His foes and maintains His wrath against His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the earth and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. 
But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. The Lord is good because he is just. The Lord is a refuge in times of trouble because he will punish sin and iniquity. I don't know about you, but there is this place inside of me, this, this place that yearns for justice in the world. There is this place inside of me that when I watch the news, or again, I read the paper, and I see about the war and violence and oppression and suffering that is everywhere, I have two things I can do. I can either become just cold-hearted and not think about it, or I can look at it full in the crease and I can face and I can bawl my eyes out. Because justice is not there. And I want justice. There is this place inside of me that thinks of the hurt and the pain that others have caused me and those I care about. And I want justice. Worse still, there is this place deep inside of me that I don't like to talk about very much, that I think about the tears that I have caused other people by what I have said, by what I have done, by what I have thought. And that part of me wants justice, though I am so terrified to face it. Because of sin, we human beings become that enemy that needs to be pursued into darkness. We are the ones that stand in front of God's just wrath, watching as the rocks get shattered before us, watching as the whirlwind comes, deafening to our ears, standing in the way of judgment, in the way of His wrath, waiting to be knocked asunder. And we are the ones that have a great high priest who comes and who stands in front of the whirlwind, absorbing the full pain of the rocks so that we don't have to. We we are the ones who have a, a faithful high priest who, though we are by nature and choice made God's foes, said, no, I will die so that you can be made His children. This is the glory of the atonement. Galatians 3 says that Christ was made a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made Him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we may have the righteousness of God. Romans 5 says that by His sacrificial death for our sins, Christ pacified the wrath of God. It was fitting for Jesus to do this because in doing this, He receives all of the glory, He receives all of the honor, He receives all of the praise. It is not us who have offered something. It was not us that can say, oh, I traded this and therefore got this. It was fitting for Christ to be that sacrificial lamb so that Christ can get the glory He rightfully deserves. F.F. Bruce writes, His death has transformed the meaning of death for them. To them His death means not judgment, but blessing. Not bondage, but liberation. We have been liberated, those of us who believe, from slavery to sin and death and judgment into the family of God through the atoning work of Christ. Adoption. I can pick it up again in verse 11b. As it, we have a quotation here from, from the Psalm 22. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of a congregation, I will sing your praises. Skipping down to the third one. Here am I and the children God has given me. It was fitting for Jesus to come to the flesh because it allowed him to fulfill the plan of God. That not only would God have worshipers, but that God would have children. 
that because Jesus came down in the flesh, He could call us, as the second quotation says, brothers, and we could call God Father. You know, it's a very interesting verse that this pulls from Psalm 22. It's clearly a messianic psalm. Messianic psalm. Messianic psalm. And if you look at Psalm 22, I invite you to do it later, not now. You look at Psalm 22, you see the first half of that psalm deals quite vividly, quite prophetically, with the kind of death that Christ was going to die. You read about his garments being destroyed. You read about lots being cast for them. And then the writer of Hebrews here picks it up midway through, pulls out this quote that happens right after all that and says, No, I will declare your name to my brothers. The idea is that it is only through the death of Christ, a death that can only be engendered by the incarnation of Christ and His humanity that allows us to be called brothers. You know, there is this popular fiction that makes me cringe every time I hear it, that, well, we're all God's children. And, and it's, got a sen- it's got, you know, it, it feels really sentimental when we hear it. And it makes me cringe because every time I hear it, I feel, I feel as if the bride of Christ is being robbed of the majesty with which Christ died so that she could have. Because while it is true that in fact all the you know, six and a half billion people in the world, we were made by God, we were created by God, we are all given with a distinct value and, and as image bearers. There is something beautiful and unique and special about every human being under the sun, regardless of what they think, believe, or who they worship. However, as we read the Gospels, as we read the words of Christ himself in in all of the varied accounts, he makes a quite a powerful distinction between who God's children are, who are the children of God, and those who are not. He says in in verse um, 12 and 13 of the Gospel of John, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. A decision for Christ is, is, is what predicates becoming a child of God. That's the implication Jesus is making here. That yes, as believers, we are to have this joy, joyful, full of fear context with which we can approach the living God and say, Daddy, I want to talk to you. And that is this beautiful thing, this adoption into God's family that He has worked through the atoning death of Christ. It says in 1 John, How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You know, last week I had the opportunity to uh, go for a hike. It's kind of the end of a day and I took my, my three-year-old and we went off into the woods and just kind of soaking in all the fall beauty. And I did something different. Generally, I'm always out to see if I can beat last week's time on a hike or, you know, hike further, faster, quicker, you know. And here I am this one day and I said, I'm just going to take my time and I'm going to help my daughter enjoy the beauty of God's creation. And so we're walking along and and she stops at one point and and we're looking at, you know, kind of what had been this copse of ferns. And my daughter's favorite color is green and so she notices that some are green, but many that were previously green are not now green. And so this stands out to her, and so I stop and I kneel down next to her, and, and I just start to talk to her through, and I tell her how God made every one of those ferns. And, it, and when God shaped those ferns, and when He created them, and when He decided what they were going to be like, He created them that this time of year, they would change color from that kind of deep green to a, a crispy yellow or even a brown. 
And then if we came back next week, more of those few that were still green would have changed color as well. And, and it was this great moment of just sitting there on my knees talking to my daughter and trying to help her soak it all in. And I'm sitting there, you know, kind of looking around this miasma of color. You know, I'm on the left and the right of the trail. We've got the, the reds and the browns and the yellows and some trees, again, still, still clinging to green. And then it struck me that I'm not worshiping some far-off creator God that is far removed, that looks down upon us, but is not really very present in our lives. I'm not worshiping some far-off creator that's not there. Even as I am sitting there on my knees, having my daughter look at with me with a face of wonder and say, Daddy, why? Daddy, how? Daddy, that's so cool. That I worship a God that says, I want you to call me Daddy. I want you too to be astounded afresh at who I am and at what I've made possible. I'm here. Call me Dad. That, that because of the atoning work of Christ brought about through the incarnation, we worship a God who says, Yeah, I, I made that blue jay that is strong in its flight and its figure. And I was the one that painted the brownish spots on, on the reddish. Uh, chipmunks as they scurry forth from the ground to and fro. This same God beckons us to call Him Father and rest in His provision, protection, and loving care and discipline. This God, it was fitting for Christ to be fully God and fully man so that He could have not just worshipers, not just servants, so that He could have a family. It's amazing. We go to application. Well, every good sermon has an application, and I think this portion of Scripture took a lot of the guesswork out of it for us. It says in verse 18, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Every high priest needs to be able to lead the people forward in their battle against sin to show them the way towards righteousness and godliness and holiness. How fitting that the Son of God would be our great high priest, that He would be the one that we are to look to in our battle against sin. Him who having tasted the, and felt the allure of sin, but not succumbed to its temptations. Hebrews 4.14 instructs us further, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us not... Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our timing of need. How fitting indeed is the work of God. You know, if you're here today, like me, there is probably some sin that you are struggling with. Maybe you're the only one that knows about it. Maybe a lot of people are already praying for you. But there is something that you know, I'm struggling with this today. How glorious, how encouraging is the thought that because Christ was made man, because He's our high priest, because He went to the cross, that we have a God who doesn't just understand what you're going through, but who understands here what you're going through. He was tempted in every way. Every way. Every way. Imagine that. 
that Jesus himself would have, would have stood at the precipice, that he himself would have felt all of the, the sin, all of the desires of the flesh, desiring to make him plunge over the cliff and gratify those desires, that he would feel their allure, that he would feel and understand the, the temptation and the pull and the tug, and yet that he would not cross that line. The glory of knowing that when you pray to God for forgiveness, you pray to a God who says, I know. The, the, the glory of praying for encouragement and strength in the midst of trial and temptation because you are praying to a God who says, I was there. I know how tempting it is. I know why you desire that. I know what it feels like. I know what it looks like. I know what it smells like. I know why you want it. But I didn't go over the line. I can help you. That is the God we worship. That is why he can say, approach my throne of grace with confidence. Not with fear, not with trembling, with confidence. I know you're going to need it. I have it to give. Come. And Jesus didn't just suffer cognitively. Jesus suffered in his battle against temptation. You know, we know in in Mark chapter 8, we see Peter trying to tell Jesus, don't go to the cross. Don't do it. Set up your earthly kingdom now. Do it now. We don't need to wait. Go now, Jesus. We see Jesus there in the wilderness. He's hungry and he's weary and he's tired. And the devil's tempting him to do what? Turn those rocks into bread, Jesus. You know you can. You don't deserve to go hungry. Come on. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane so overwhelmed at the thought of taking our sins upon himself that he what? He sweats tears of blood. And that's what he chose to do. It was fitting for it to be that way. He felt the temptation. He could have just eaten some food right there. He could have said, sure, I'm going to set up my kingdom right now. Forget this whole cross thing. But then we would not be able to call Him brother. We would not be able to call God Father. We would not have the hope that He gives every Christian. You know, the first Adam sinned and he plunged the entire human race into it along with him. And in Christ we see the second Adam fully fulfilling God's law, perfectly demonstrating obedience, yet having been tempted. We have Christ, the second Adam, having taken His flesh upon Himself that we could be free from sin and we could have help in our trials and our temptations. F.F. Bruce writes, In order to be a perfect high priest, a person must sympathize with those on whose behalf he acts. And he cannot sympathize with them unless he can enter into their experiences and share them for himself. Because of the incarnation of Christ, because of his work as the great high priest, God, in a very real, intimate sense, shares with what you bring him this morning. And so the next time, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's right now, maybe it's ten minutes from now. For me, it was probably three minutes ago. The next time you start to struggle with that sin, the next time that you start to see that thing that you want and you can't get your mind off it, the next time you're inexorably pulled on towards slander, lying, gossip, towards watching or thinking about something you shouldn't, towards drinking excessively, know that you can pray to a God who knows exactly what you're going through, but who did not give 
in. And He wants you to approach Him as the mediator. He wants you to seek His aid and His help. Someone might say to me, however, Pastor, how far is this help going to go? Can Christ really help me through any and every temptation? How is He, as this high priest that you're talking about, going to lead me through those temptations and trials we don't like to talk about in church? How is He going to lead me through sexual temptation? Well, the answer is He can, and, um, and actually I won't. John Piper will show you how. John writes, We must not give a sexual image or impulse more than five seconds before we mount a violent counterattack with the mind. I mean that, five seconds. In the first two seconds, we shout, No, get out of my mind. In the next two seconds, we cry out, Oh God, in the name of Jesus, I need help now. I'm yours. Good beginning. But now the real battle begins. This is a mind war we're talking about. And the absolute necessity is to get that image out of the mind. How? Well, you place a counter image in the mind. Fight, push, strike. Don't mess up. It must be an image so powerful that the other image cannot survive with it. For example, in the first five seconds of having been pulled towards temptation, have you ever reflected on the crucified, atoning figure of Christ? Picture this. You're, just, you're there and you just see a, a peekaboo blouse inviting further fantasy. And in the first five seconds, you say, no, get out of my mind. God, help me. Now immediately you fix your gaze upon Christ on the cross using all of your fantasizing power. Imagine the lacerated back of Christ. Imagine the effect of the 39 lashes that would have left little flesh intact. Imagine the vertical beam to which He is nailed through by His hands. The Lord gasps. From time to time, He screams with intolerable pain. He tries to pull away from that beam, but He cannot. In agony, He tries to push Himself up so that He gain a breath, and He finds Himself pulled back by the nails. There is no relief. His throat is raw from screaming and from thirst. He loses His breath and thinks He is suffocating. In torment, he forgets about the crown of two-inch nails and throws his head back in desperation only to drive them deeper into his skull. His voice reaches a soprano pitch of pain and sobs break over his body as every cry brings more and more pain. Now I am not thinking about that blouse anymore. I'm at Calvary. I'm with my high priest. Jesus is the great high priest of every Christian because He came in the flesh. Because He pacified the wrath of God and made it so that we could be cleansed from our sins. Because He paves the way that we can be called son and daughter and that we can approach God and say, Father, it is because He is our great high priest that we can say, lead me forward in my battle against sin. Bring me victory even as you worked victory. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in, his, in my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! 
He left His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite His grace, emptied Himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love, how can it be? For, oh my God, it has found me. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God. For Jesus died for thee.